Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is part one of episode 40 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Paul's Farewell to the Ephesian Elders, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 20, verses 13 through 38. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? Oh, listen, this is one of the gem chapters in the, in the New Testament on, on the topic of what it means to be an elder, a, a good elder of a local church. For me as a pastor, you and I, uh, Wes, are both elders at First Baptist Church. This is a go-to chapter on, on many elements of being a godly elder. There's lots of elements of, of role modeling, of faithful teaching, of shepherding, of caution concerning dangers to the church. There's so many themes that Paul goes over over in this this farewell address. And uh, I've used it many times to teach other uh, men at seminary settings and in conferences elements of healthy pastoral ministry. So we've got a lot to cover today. Well, let me go ahead and read Acts chapter 20, verses 13 through 38 for us as we begin. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ." And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. 
In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Andy, why did Paul decide not to visit Ephesus again? And what does his sending for the Ephesian elders teach us about his vision of ministry and of the universal church? Well, one of the marvelous things about the book of Acts is, uh, is the details that Luke gives us, the, the geographical details, the historical reference points and physical reference points that helps us realize the New Testament, the entire Bible is not a book of myths. It's a book of history. It's a book of things that actually happened in space and time. And so we're actually, you can trace out Paul's journey as, as the ship he was on or the ships that he was on just kind of bumps its way along the coast of modern day Turkey, mm. making its way kind of around the corner and heading then east uh, ultimately to Jerusalem. And the answer to your question is Paul says, um, Luke tells us in the text, he wanted to hurry on and get to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. He had his own reasons for doing that. And so he doesn't want to stop there. Now, Ephesus was uh, in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, It was one of the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation on a kind of a circular postal route um, by the coast of of uh, Turkey, of the Mediterranean Sea, or the Aegean Sea. I don't know where one starts and the other ends, Um, but right along there. And so Paul wants to make his way to Jerusalem, but he still cares about this church at Ephesus. It's very important, and it's an important church in the New Testament. Um, So he calls for the Ephesian elders and wants to give them this charge. What does his calling for them teach us about his vision of ministry and of the universal church? Really, that's the question, and we're going to be walking through that the rest of the chapter. Uh, There's so many themes here where Paul gives himself as a role model. He's basically saying to all pastors for 20 centuries that follow him, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Let me tell you what it means to be an under-shepherd mm. under Christ. So there are many other passages we can look to, Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, other places that tell us what an, you know, what an elder should be. But this chapter especially gives us a sense of what an elder should do, what is what is actual ministry should be, the teaching of the word, the preaching of the gospel to lost people, the shepherding of souls, the protection of the flock, the, the fact or sense of being an overseer. Uh, by the way, about the titles, you get you get all the titles of pastor, shepherd, um, you know, pastor, shepherd, overseer, elder, uh, interchangeably used here. So that really does give us a sense that they are the same office, pastor slash elder uh, slash overseer. They're all the same. Anyway, there's so many elements and we're going to walk through them as we, we go verse by verse. So why does Paul discuss how he lived among them? And what does Paul's frequently reminding people of his way of life in Christ teach us about his approach to disciple-making and church planting? Well, again, I'm going to go back to the uh, verse I just cited a moment ago, follow my example or follow me as I follow the example of Christ. And so we start with Christ. And what Christ did with his apostles, it says in Mark chapter 3, he spent the night praying and designated 12 of them to be apostles. And it said, so that they should be with him and that he should send them out to preach. So the first thing is just be with me, stay with me, watch how I live, watch Mm -hmm. how I eat, watch how I drink, watch how I sleep, watch how I pray, watch how I evangelize, do ministry, all of that, watch me. And Paul's picking that up and he's saying, look, so much of ministry is caught 
it's also taught. It's not caught, not taught. It's both. There is role modeling and there is faithful teaching in good ministry. And Paul gives both here. But he starts with his uh, his role modeling in verse 18. You know how I live the whole time. You watch me the whole time. I was in a fishbowl. Hmm. You were watching me. And I know it. And, and so if you want to be an elder, you want to be a pastor, you get ready to be in the fishbowl. You get ready to present yourself as a role model. Not a perfect man. But you are going to be watched. And it's intentional that you would be hospitable, that you would open up your home and say, hey, come and watch how we do family dinners and how I train my kids when they disobey and, and you know, how I interact with my wife. Um, those various themes um, watch me. So role modeling is big. And it's not just one time. He mentions it a number of times. For example, he talks about later um, how hard he worked. Uh, he said, in everything I did, you know, in, my, in verse 34, 35, these hands of mine have supplied my own needs. Uh, you know how I did that. Uh, I showed you in everything I did that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, et cetera. Role modeling. Mm. So that was his tent making kind of thing. He's like, he was a hard worker. So it starts with role modeling, with the way he lived his life. You know how I lived with you the whole time I was with you. Now, obviously, nobody did it like Jesus. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. But he did come and tabernacle with us. He pitched his tent with us and he made his dwelling among us in John chapter 1 so that we could see his glory and imitate him. Now, at first glance, it might seem a bit ironic that Paul would talk about his own humility so positively. I know one author has said that one of the uh, most contradictory things in his mind was to write a book on humility and then have it published and promote it and think – what am I doing? How am I writing on humility and then promoting this work of mine? So Paul's talking about his own humility here in verse 19. How would you define humility and why is it so important for the Christian? And what's the connection between that humility and the trials he talks about? Yeah, that's an interesting point you bring up. And Moses does the same thing because when Miriam and and Aaron criticized uh, him, uh, the text says, now Moses was meek, the most meek or humble man on earth. Well, Moses wrote those words. I mean, imagine saying, I am the most humble man on earth. Um, But at any rate, Paul's doing the same thing. Here's the thing. Fundamentally, it's vital. It's absolutely vital. I, I think sanctification being growth in, in grace and the knowledge of Christ, and, and part of it is a slaughtering of our sin. Mm. How important is pride when it comes to our sin? It's, it's at the root of many sins. I would not go so far as to say the root of all of them, but it's, it's a significant corrupting influence. So conversely, when we're converted and then being sanctified, um, our pride has to be slaughtered. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so um, Paul said, I served with with humility. You know I did. What do you mean, Paul? What do you mean that you served with humility? Well, I wasn't looking for any great things for myself. I wasn't trying to get rich. I wasn't trying to be powerful. I didn't choose the best seats, um, as Jesus said in Matthew 23, the seats of honor at the banquets. I didn't look for honorific titles. You know how I did that. And the only reason I'm mentioning it is I want you to do the same. Mm. Uh, don't lord it over, as Peter says in First Peter uh, 5, not lording it over those entrusted, but being examples to the flock. Well, imagine that. Say, I want you to know I am an example of not lording it over. Mm. What is that? That's humility. So I think it is appropriate for him to mention it because these men need to lead with humility. Now, I want to say church history has been replete with exactly the opposite. I think about the medieval popes and people would come groveling and kissing their rings like they were world emperors. And and they would humble and crush their opponents, even defeat them in, militarily on the, on the battlefield. These are This is not my picture of a shepherd, uh, of a, you know, they, they were wealthy um, 
and, and powerful men, and they were not humble. See the same thing with some mega church pastors, some TV personalities, others, they're just arrogant people. So it's a warning to both you and I, Wes, that we would continually look after our humility as we lead the flock. And we see Paul engaged in uh, moments where he's persecuted and suffering for the sake of the gospel, quite the opposite mm-hmm. of someone who is seeking that place of protectedness or safety for themselves or yep. thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to think. So he's not just spoken of humility, but lived this before them in the way right. he's conducted himself. In the context here, and you're even mentioning it here in verse 19, he says, I serve the Lord with humility and with tears. Uh, even though I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. Uh, and he writes about this in Thessalonians. The Jews, some Jews who hated Christ, who opposed Christ, Jesus called some of his fellow Jews sons of the devil. Mm. And so, you know, just to say that, Paul says, yeah, we've got some of that same brood who have hunted me down and chased me from place to place. Mm. So he's mentioning that severely tested by the plots of the Jews. And again, the plot, you know, one of them we're gonna see later in the same book, in the book of Acts, where, where some Jews decide they will not eat until they've assassinated Paul. That's their level of commitment. And so, yeah, I was severely tested by that. How could Paul's statements in verses 20 and 27 be considered really the centerpiece of pastoral ministry? And why why might pastors shrink back from preaching the whole counsel of God to their congregations? All right, so let's say what the verses are. Verse 20 says in my version, uh, you know that I've not hesitated or shrunk back from preaching anything that would be helpful to you, anything that would be helpful, uh, but have taught you publicly and from house to house um, and then we'll, we'll talk about the next verse, I know, in a few minutes. But um, I've declared to Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance of faith in our Lord Jesus. Repentance of faith, that's the basic gospel. So that's foundational. But he, you know, he's thinking about the gospel. He's saying, I, I have not shrunk back from preaching anything that would be helpful, not just the gospel, but anything. And then verse 27, I have not shrunk back from proclaiming the whole counsel of God or the whole will of God, meaning all of all of Scripture's grand unfolding themes, creation, fall, redemption, um, all of these great themes. So details, you know, the forest and the trees, the big picture and the details, that's what I've sought to do. I like the statement, anything that would be helpful. Hmm. So there is a practicality. You can be too practical in ministry. You can sever uh, morality and ethics from from sound exegesis and theology. Don't ever do that. But sound exegesis and theology must transition over into actions, uh, fruit. So I've uh, whatever would be helpful. All right, helpful for what? Well, like you married people. I've taught you what godly Christian marriage looks like, what a, what a godly husband does for his wife, how wives should be with their husbands. I've taught you how parents should raise their children. I've, I've tried to be helpful to you. You know, what you should do with government authorities, you know, how you should pay taxes, you know, how you should pray, I mean, many, many themes. All I would say is just to our podcast listeners, just look at the epistles, look at Paul's epistles. That would be anything that would be helpful. So all the topics that come up in the, in the 12 epistles that Paul wrote, um, yeah, that's what he meant. So I wanted to help you. But to answer your question, what it shows me is the absolute primacy of the ministry of the Word of God. It's central. It is the most important thing an elder does, a pastor does, teach the Word. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he taught them many things. That's what Jesus did. John 6, don't labor for the food that spoils. I'm going to give you real food, and that food is the ministry of the word. Jesus' top priority was the ministry of the word, 
and so also Paul. So um, also the idea here is shrinking back. What would cause us to shrink back? Well, the word of God gets in our grill. The word of God convicts us. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for what? Teaching, rebuking, or reproof, correction. What do those two say to you, Wes? Rebuke and correction. It means that there are some <laughs> things in our life that are perhaps headed in one direction, and they need to not be headed in that direction. Yeah. And this is turning those things, correcting them, bringing them right. back in line with God's design. Exactly. Now let's go back to the earlier theme. How does pride factor into that? Who wants to hear that they're messing up in their marriage or in their parenting or in their prayer life or in their sexual purity life or whatever? Who wants to hear that and that they need to repent? Mm. Or there's going to be discipline. There's going to be, nobody wants to hear that. And so there's a tendency to shoot the messenger. And because there's a tendency to shoot the messenger, we pastors tend to shrink back. We tend to soft pedal some things that we think are going to be controversial. Mm. I know for myself, I know the things wherein the gospel is countercultural. Stuff on gender roles, let's say, roles of women in the church, stuff on homosexuality, stuff on sexual purity, ways that we're swimming upstream against a, a flood of faulty worldviews. Well, when you do that, there are going to be people in your church that have been have indoctrinated some of those worldviews, and they're going to get angry. They're going to push back. Mm. And so there is that tendency to shrink back. And Paul said, look, I didn't do that. I didn't shrink back from anything. Now, you mentioned it a moment ago, but how are the repentance and faith in Christ that Paul proclaims in verse 21 ongoing needs even for the mature Christian? Mm -hmm. And in what way do they characterize the whole Christian life, not just the start? Sure. Well, I go right away to the beginning of Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 15, when Jesus began his ministry, he said, The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. Those are the basic two commands that Almighty God is giving to the sinful human race. That's it. That's where it starts. What must we do to work the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. Oh, but he only mentions belief there. Look, belief and belief in the gospel and repentance from sin are really just two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. I've said before that faith, justification by faith, faith is the eyesight of the soul by which you can see things. All right, what are you seeing? Well, speaking first about Christ, you're seeing the glory and the greatness and the purity and beauty of Christ and the significance of his death on the cross and his resurrection. Flip it around. What do you see in yourself? I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Mm. That's what you see. So, and the reaction of the faith of seeing yourself for the first time because of the law, because of the two great commandments and the 10 commandments and all that, you see yourself as a corrupted, wicked sinner that deserves hell. You see that, but you don't see it as fully as you should. Conversely, you see the glory of Christ, but you don't see it as fully as you should. Sanctification, then, is just the same thing again and again. The greatness of Christ and the wickedness of my indwelling sin. And that's the journey that we're on. So repentance and faith is a permanent feature, but it is the beginning of the Christian life. That's how somebody is born again. They hear the gospel with faith, and they see themselves because of the law, as a sinner that needs a savior that Jesus is, they repent and believe and they are saved. And then sanctification continues in the same pattern. What does Paul mean by I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit? And what do we learn from the fact mm. that Paul says, not knowing what will happen to me? Yeah, man, this is amazing. Can I, can I add the next verse too? Sure. Verse 23, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. All right, so which is it, Paul? Are you compelled by the Spirit to go or are you warned by the Spirit that you're going to get arrested in persecution? He would say both. Hmm. The Spirit tells me ahead of time what's going to happen, and he's telling me to go anyway. So the Spirit's compelling me to go suffer, to suffer. Like it said at his conversion, Acts 9, I will show him 
how much he must suffer for my name. So here's the compulsion of the Spirit. And I love that. There's a famous missionary book written by Roland Allen, I think, called The Compulsion of the Spirit. It's talking mm. about missions. So I think we should, all of us, have a compulsion of the Spirit in the external journey. We talk about the two journeys. This is a two journeys podcast. To take the gospel to lost people across the street or across the world. A compulsion by the Spirit. If you don't have a Spirit compulsion, we need to go get one. You need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? for evangelism and missions. What can I do for the kingdom? And so he says, I'm compelled by the spirit. It reminds me of Jeremiah where he is weary of his ministry. He had the hardest ministry in the Old Testament. I really believe that. He's weary of it. He said, the word of God has brought me reproach all day long. And and I said, that's it. I'm not gonna speak anymore in his name. But if I hold it in, I cannot. I'm weary of holding it in. For the word of God is like a fire that burns within my bones. I cannot, indeed, I cannot hold it in. Mm. So that's compulsion by the Spirit. There's nothing I can do. I know it's gonna bring me trouble, but I've gotta tell you what the Lord has told me. So compelled by the Spirit, and where's he going? Jerusalem. Jesus himself said, rather sarcastically, oh, no prophet can ever die outside of Jerusalem. That's the place where prophets go to die. And Jesus was really condemning Jerusalem and its habit Mm. of killing prophets. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets and, and, and kill those sent to you. How often I've longed to gather your children together. Paul's going there. And we know what's going to happen. If you've read Acts, he's going he's to get arrested. There's a riot. They're going to want to kill him that day. So he says, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to the city whose stones are wet with the blood of godly people. Mm. That's where I'm going. And I don't know exactly exactly what's going to happen, but I know generally what's going to happen. Mm. The Jews who have severely tested me by their plots, they're there. They're waiting for me. And they're going to identify me. And so I am forced to go there. Now, verse 23 says, look, I know that in every city, wherever I go, prison and hardships are facing me. So that's what's going to happen. It's almost like you can hear Paul saying, I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but I know that these are the types of things that I'll face wherever I go. And that's echoed really in what he says in verse 24, one of the greatest personal statements Paul ever made. What does it mean that Paul considers his life worth nothing to him except in reference to him finishing his race? And is this sense of a personal mission from the Lord only for people like Paul? Wow. I mean, this chapter, what's this chapter? How are we going to do this podcast in like <laughs> half an hour? I mean, I don't this know. This might but, be a, on your way to work and from work. Right, podcast. right. You know, or right. you're on vacation. We, get, you we know. get you both ways today. <laughs> okay. That's right. There's just so much here. But yeah, you know, Acts 20, verse 24 is just one of the great statements Paul makes about himself. Now, really, all it is is a restatement of something Jesus said uh, whoever loves his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, Jesus actually says in another version, hates his life in this world. If you love your life in this world, you lose it. But if you hate your life in this world, you'll keep it. So what did Jesus mean when he said, same thing, anyone who does not hate his father or mother or his his family, even if even his own life, Jesus said that, Paul's just picking up on it. Mm-hmm. So the same, I don't know if, G, if Paul ever heard Jesus say it. The New Testament hadn't been written yet, but the same Holy Spirit was in Paul teaching the teachings Jesus taught. And he taught him to hate his life. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean to hate it. It doesn't. It's a relative term. Compared to your great love for Jesus, your life is of little account to you. If by killing me, the cause could be advanced, I'm willing to give it up. 
Well, that's what he's saying. Mm. You know, he's willing, he's not trying to preserve his life. He's not looking for safety. Um, he's looking to lay down his life for Christ. He has said in, in John 12, 24, unless a kernel of wheat falls down the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. So Paul says, look, I'm counting or reckoning or considering my life as if it's worth nothing. Um, if only I may finish the race and complete the task. So he, he sees his, his life work like a marathon race. You know, 1 Corinthians 9 uses this language. Don't you know that in a race, all the runners run? I'm going to run in such a way that I may obtain the prize. So Paul looked on a course set out before him. Also, the author of Hebrews gives us this image. You know, there's a race marked out in front of us. Let's run that race with endurance. So what is your race, Paul? Evangelism, mm -hmm. missions, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That's what I'm called to do. Mm -hmm. And until I have finished that finish line, I, I'm going to keep suffering, whatever it, it takes. I am willing to go to Jerusalem. I'm willing to be persecuted. I'm willing to be put in prison, even to die. Mm -hmm. If only I might finish that race. Now, beautifully, in 2 Timothy, he's going to say, I have fought the good fight. What? I have finished the race. Mm -hmm. I have kept the faith. Now, faith. now there is a crown laid up for me. Paul says, I've done it. I've, I'm there. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty, pretty sweet. This has been part one of episode 40 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for part two, where we'll continue our discussion of this great passage. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.